You ever had someone do a job for you and they did a poor job? Anybody? Whether it's work on your house or in your yard or on your car and the work that they did was just insufficient. And then later you have an encounter with someone extremely skilled in home building, landscaping, and car repair, and, and you think to yourself, man, if I could have just met you earlier. Anybody ever have an experience like that? Well, the Jewish Christian audience in the book of Hebrews is receiving this sort of news from the author of Hebrews. He is informing them that they are putting too much stock in the old, insufficient, sacrificial system. He is informing them that, that something better, someone superior, new, true, and greater has come. They are settling for far less than what God intends. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're still in Hebrews, <laughs> talking about Jesus and the fact that he is greater. For the past few months now, you know, we have been focused in on the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, greater than all the Levitical priests, past, present, better than Aaron, better than Levi, better than, than Abraham. He's from a greater priestly order associated with a, a better covenant. And we learned from the passage we looked at last week and the one we're going to focus on today that Jesus also provides a superior sacrifice. A superior sacrifice. In chapter 9, we looked at the work the Jewish priest did over and over again. And we talked about the fact that, that forgiveness of sin demands sacrifice. But we also talked about the insufficiency of animal sacrifice. And we, we, we learn here in this passage and all throughout this book that, that Jesus has offered up a, a better sacrifice. And that sacrifice is, of course, himself. He's better in every way. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, we learn even more about Christ's great sacrifice. We're almost to a transition in the book of Hebrews where he's going to transition from what we've been talking about for months on end to really the practical side of the book of Hebrews, the great therefore. We're almost there, but not quite yet. Last week we looked at the key characteristics of the old animal sacrifices of the old covenant that made them insufficient. This week we're going to close out this passage by looking at the sufficient one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ that ushered in the new covenant. And let me tell you, let me warn you, it's coming at you here in a minute, but there is a lot in this passage, like most of the passages in Hebrews. Before we look, though, at the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, let's take a few minutes just briefly to review what we talked about last week in verses 1 through 6 once again. Last week we talked about the insufficient sacrifice of the old covenant. The insufficient sacrifice of the old 
covenant. And how was the old covenant insufficient? One way, they could not provide access to God. These sacrifices could not provide access to God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, we learn that the old sacrifices from the old system, they are continually offered every year because they cannot make perfect those who draw near. So they have to be offered over and over again, right? We're reminded once again, last week, the work of the Levitical priest, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were insufficient because in and of themselves, they were not able to save. They could not make perfect. They could not make man fit to enter into the presence of holy God. Though the priests were at work on a daily basis, constantly engaged in the practices of offering up bloody sacrifices on behalf of God's people, those sacrifices alone could not make people right. They could not grant access to God. They were just shadows. We talked about last week, right? They were a skia, that's the Greek word, a pale prototype, a faint shadow, form without substance. That's what the Jews had without Jesus. The second reason the old system and old sacrifices were insufficient, number two, they could not remove sin. Now, they, we talked about they reminded man of his sin, but there was no removal of sin. That old system and sacrifices just showed man his sinfulness and need constantly. It was constantly a bloody scene at the tabernacle and later at the temple. And every time they saw that blood, it was a reminder to them of the fall and the consequence of sin and the need for sin to be forgiven. It reminded them that their sin debt remained. It reminded them of their need for a better priest with a better superior sacrifice. Here's the third reason the old system and sacrifice were insufficient. It's because they were only external. They were external. The author of Hebrews makes this point again and again. The blood of bulls and goats did not have the power to remove sin. That doesn't mean, however, that they were completely insignificant. They were, however, completely insufficient apart from Jesus. These acts were to be performed by the Old Testament priest in faith, looking forward to and trusting in the future promises of God, looking forward to the Messiah to come. But in and of themselves, they were completely insufficient. There was an external significance to these sacrifices we talked about that right they made one clean outwardly to participate in ceremony but they could never get at the heart and make any changes there these sacrifices never took away sin they were viewed as god by god as providing an an outward cleansing from ceremonial defilement but did not provide necessary inward cleansing of the heart Okay, so that's what we looked at last week. The insufficient sacrifices of the old covenant. Now let's focus in on the sufficient sacrifice of the new covenant in verses 7 through 18. The first reason the new system inaugurated by Christ and, and, and the sacrifice he provided was sufficient is because, number one, it was God's plan all along. We talked about this again and again in this series, in other series. Jesus was not plan B, never was. 
He was always the only plan from the beginning. And the writer of Hebrews does an excellent job just reminding them of that all throughout the Old Testament. Look at verses 5 again, verse 5 through verse 8. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. So again, notice here the author of Hebrews taking us back to what has been said in the Old Testament because his audience is a Jewish Christian audience. He does this throughout the book, but especially when he's talking about the priesthood and especially when he's talking about the priesthood of Jesus. And the reason why he does this is because the Jews so cherished the the Jewish priesthood and the old system. But he shows them by taking them back, it was never meant to be a permanent thing. It was always designed to be temporary and secondary. In Psalm 40, God makes it clear that the sacrifices and offerings of the old covenant is not what God desired. He has a certain someone in mind that these sacrifices, that these priests and their work pointed toward. His plan was always Christ. It was always to send Christ. When David says in Psalm 40, Behold, I have come to do your will, notice these words are not simply David's, and we know that. For those of us who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and that all Scripture is God-breathed, we know those are God's words. But notice the author of Hebrews does something very, very interesting. He takes David's words and he applies them to Jesus. I love verse 5. Seems as if there's like a conversation taking place on the eve of the incarnation between God the Father and God the Son. Some commentators refer to to this as the pre-incarnation conversation between the Father and, and Son. We're told when Christ came into the world, he understood, like was spoken by the psalmist David, he understood, God, you ultimately Never plan for these these animal sacrifices to cut it. God, you, you never ultimately wanted these sacrifices of animals. You knew all along that wouldn't cut it. All along, you knew that would not do. Instead, look, you have prepared a body for me. That's why I have to go. That's why I have to become a man. That's the ultimate play. It was your plan all along. Christ is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He was always the way. He was always the play. He was always the plan. Look at verse 7. How did Christ respond to this plan? Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Boy, he said this multiple times in different ways throughout his earthly ministry, right? Jesus, when looking at God's plan, follow this, and his role in God's plan responds with, I am going to do your will, O God, as it is written in your word. Believers, what a great example for us of what it means to be godly. There we have it right there. 
Godliness, write this down, godliness, being Christ-like, is responding in this way. It's knowing what God's word calls for you to do and saying, I will do your will in accordance with your word. That's godliness. That needs to be our prayer this morning, believers. We need to all pray that God would mold us and make us like Jesus in this way. We need to pray, God, show me your will from your word and give me the grace to do your will in accordance with your word. That needs to be your prayer, believer. Let me say it again. Our prayer as believers needs to be, God, show me your will from your word and give me the grace to do your will in accordance with your word. Christ laid that example out for us again and again. Once we see, once again, we see Christ is, is the perfect example for us of what it means to be Godly. He, unlike all the other priests, was perfectly holy. A wonderful, worshipful priest who did not simply go through the motions, but lovingly obeyed the Father. Jesus made it clear that's what he came to do. He came to do the will of him who sent him. He said, it is my meat to do the will of the Father. And the Father, unlike with many of the priests of old who had ritual but no reverence in relationship with God, the Father was pleased with the Son and the work He accomplished. He said that from the heavens. He said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father was pleased with the person and work of His Son. The work He did as our great high priest is what the Father desired. The sacrifice of Christ, offering His own life, laying it down was what was pleasing to God is what satisfied his wrath and what makes us right through trusting in that great work. So that's the first reason the new system and sacrifice was sufficient. It was God's great plan all along. Second, it's sufficient because it properly replaced the old. It properly replaced the old system. Look at verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to your law. Now remember, in verses 5 through 7, he's quoting Psalm 40. And here in verses 8 and 9, <clears throat> what he's doing is he's giving us a commentary of this Old Testament psalm. When he quoted Psalm 40, he said, God does not desire sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He has taken no pleasure. These offerings, the author of Hebrews says, were offered according to the law. That's the old way, the old system and sacrifices. Notice all the different words he uses here. Sacrifice, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offering. He's just covering his basis to make the point that nothing the priest of the old system did in and of themselves was sufficient. It was insufficient. It was surface, external, and empty apart from Jesus. That's why Christ had to come. Look at verse 9. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish 
the second. Again, the old system was never meant to cut it on its own. The strength of the old is in the person and work of the new, the Lord Jesus Christ. God knew that from the start. There had to be something better. That was God's plan all along, that there would be something better. God took no pleasure in the old because it did not save. It did not provide access to God. It did not remove sin. It was external and ritualistic on its own. It was meant to be replaced and has been replaced, praise God, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has come and he has accomplished the Father's will. And that is, that, that, that's what he's done by, by coming. And the work that he accomplished, it does away with the first order and establishes the second. And notice the middle of verse 9. We're told this is God's will. You see that? It was God's will for the new covenant in Christ to replace the old Mosaic covenant. Here's the third reason the new system and sacrifice is sufficient. Sacrifice of Jesus, number three, it sanctifies the believer. This new system and superior sacrifice sufficiently sanctifies the believer. It makes him or her trusting in Christ's person and work holy. Could the old system in and of itself make man or woman holy? Say no. Should know by now. It was the future work. The future work of Christ that saved them. And, and, and those in, in the old, they were to be looking forward in faith, offering up those sacrifices in faith, looking forward to Christ to make them right. Look at verse 10. It's an interesting verse. <clears throat> he says, and by that will, God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So through the will of the Father who sent the Son, through the accomplished work of Christ, through the offering of His body once for all, we have been sanctified. That's past tense. We're going to get to that in just a minute. We have been made holy. We have been set apart and made right Positionally, Now get this, this is where people get confused. Notice I said positionally. Positionally, we are there. Positionally, we are where we need to be. Positionally, we are holy. Positionally, we are right with God. Positionally, we are there. But where are we practically? Practically, we've got some work to do, don't we? The scripture speaks on both of these things very, very clearly. God is clear on this in his word. Positionally, you're where you need to be. You're in Christ. Your hope is anchored within the heavenly veil in Christ in the heavenly holy of holies. Positionally, you're there. Practically, you're nowhere close. Nowhere close to where you need to be. And God's will is that you move practically closer and closer to where you are positionally. You see that? That's why he says we're, we're right, we're holy, we've been set apart, but we need to grow in godliness, right? We need to pursue godliness. We need to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, Paul says very, very clearly. Positionally, you're where you need to be, but practically, we've got work to do. R.C. Sproul said this of this verse because he speaks of sanctification in the past tense. That's what I believe he's talking about. He's going to talk about sanctification in the present here in just a minute. But when commenting on verse 10, Sproul said this. He said, 
The topic is not the process of sanctification here, but the once-for-all change in our status when we are united with Christ by faith. And in this way, we are separated from sin's pollution and qualified for the worship of God. So believers, positionally, we're where we need to be because of Christ and His great work and because of His righteousness that He gives us through our faith. Because of that, if you're trusting in Christ's great work, you stand before God in Christ, holy and righteous, because your life is hid in His holy and righteous existence in His life. Your life is hid in His. So that's another reason. This is superior. But we're not done. He's got more. It just gets better. Fourth reason, the new covenant, new sacrifice is better. It removes sin. Amen? We've said this over and over again in this study, but it's important. The old system, the old sacrifices couldn't cut it. The old system could not remove sin. Look at verse 11. The author says simply that. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Remember when we looked at the layout of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, we said there were, there were no seats in the tabernacle. Remember? That's significant. There was one, there was the mercy seat, and no priest would, would dare prop himself up on that to take a break, right? There were, there were no seats for the priest. That's significant. The reason why is because the priest never sat down. There was always work to do. Their work was never done. They had to offer up the same sacrifices repeatedly, which could never take away sin. On the flip side of that, notice the work Christ accomplished. Look at verses 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's the present tense, sanctification there, right? So notice here there's a series of contrasts in verses 11 through 14 that are significant that really tell the story of Jesus' supremacy when compared to the priest of old. First of all, notice the phrase, every priest, and then notice the word Christ. There were many priests in the Levitical order. Now, there was only one high priest at one time, but there were a bunch of high priests over the course of time, lots of priests. There's only one Christ, one Messiah, one hope of salvation. All these other priests and their priestly works, they didn't cut it. All they did was they pointed toward the need for the new. They pointed toward the need for Jesus. They painted a picture of the work that Christ would come to accomplish. Notice the second contrast, verse 11. The priest of older standing, talked about that. Verse 12, Christ is sitting. Now, we talked about why the priests were standing. Their work was never done. But why is Christ sitting? Simple, one word, tetelestai. Tetelestai, Christ said at Calvary, meaning it is finished. And he's not saying that, saying I'm finished. He's saying it's finished. 
The work that God sent him to do, it was accomplished through the life he lived, through the death he died after being raised up again. He was raised to life again. He returned to the Father on high. And we're told that Christ has taken his seat, signifying that the work he has accomplished in saving us is complete. Next contrast, in verse 11, the priest of old offered sacrifices, plural, repeatedly. Verse 12, Christ offered what type of sacrifice for sin? A single sacrifice, once for all time. We've said this again and again. The eternal Son of God took care of sins, past, present, and future forever, once for all, with a single sacrifice. Folks, the work Christ accomplished at Calvary on that Friday afternoon nearly 2,000 years ago was a sufficient work that, that was a one-time work, and guess what? It cannot be improved upon in any way. You know why? Because it's a perfect work. You cannot improve upon perfection. Let's say I were up here and Van Gogh's Starry Night was here, the original. And I had a paintbrush and some paint. And I wanted to just add a little more to the moon and add some stars and maybe draw myself in there, a little self-portrait of myself. What would that do to that painting? It would ruin it completely, right? Let, let's, let's think about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Let's say I were to take that and in the middle of it, add my own little ditty and, and put it in the middle of it. What, what's it going to do? It's going to ruin it, right? How much more so when you add to the work that Christ accomplished at Calvary? His work at Calvary was God's masterpiece for the ages. Anything you try to add to it, you're going to ruin it completely. There's nothing you can do to add to it. It's, it's perfect. It doesn't need to be replaced. It doesn't need to be improved upon. It's a perfect work. We just trust in it and receive that great work that Christ has done on our behalf in faith. The old system, the old sacrifice needed improving. It needed perfecting. It needed replacing. It could not grant access to God. It was temporary. It could not remove sin. Christ, one time, sacrifice made a way for enemies of God to be forgiven and restored as children of God in the presence of God in Christ forever. It's amazing. So the new sacrifice of Christ under the new covenant is better it is sufficient because it's God's plan all along. Properly replace the old system. It sanctifies the believer. It removes sin forever. We're not done. The fifth reason it's better is because it destroyed God's enemies. The old sacrifices, old covenant could do nothing of the sort. Satan wasn't threatened in the least by the old sacrifices and old covenant. Now, he should have been, knowing who they pointed toward in the, pic, the picture of the work they, they, they illustrated. But in and of themselves, those works couldn't destroy the works of the, the devil. They could not crush him. Jesus, however, different story altogether. Look at verse 12 and again verse 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
Jesus' incarnation, the life he lived, the death he died, the life he took up again three days after, after his death, delivered a death blow to all of God's enemies. First, he defeated Satan. We're told by John that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 and Hebrews 2.14 we're told, Through death, Christ destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. That's pretty plain and, and clear there. Christ also defeated his enemies and the enemies of God's people at Calvary and those to go after. We're told the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But we're told here that Christ triumphed over his enemies at Calvary. Remember Peter and the other apostles, they made this point again and again throughout the book of Acts. They said, though you killed Christ, God raised him up. He was victorious over death. Here we're told he's at the right hand of the Father waiting for that time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. These are some exciting verses here that the author of Hebrews gives us to tell of this future victory that King Jesus is going to have over his enemies. And though there's a little lost on us in this picture, in this day, they understood the imagery there was a time when kings ruled and when they conquered a neighboring kingdom, the defeated king would be brought forward and he was made to kneel before the victorious king with his head on the ground and that king would prop his foot up on the head of that conquered king. On the head of his enemy. It was a sign of total victory. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to do that. There's coming a day when King Jesus is going to defeat every enemy in total victory. This great work is already in the works. The fate of God's enemies was really sealed at the very beginning. Remember on the heels of the fall, Genesis 3.15, God says through the seed of the woman, one is going to come who's going to crush the serpent's head. That's Jesus. That's why that verse of scripture is called the proto-evangelium which is a, just a fancy word that means the first gospel. The first mention of the gospel is right there. Then Christ came. And he conquered sin and death through his death and resurrection. It was sealed at Calvary. That victory was. Christ conquered our great enemy, not just Satan, but death itself through his own death and resurrection. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that in Christ, death's sting is removed. It's swallowed up in victory. Christ has conquered death with his own death and resurrection and through him, through faith alone, in him alone, we have life even though we die. He's better. The final reason the new system and sacrifice is sufficient is because it secures believers forever. Secures believers forever. We said last week that the old system and sacrifices did not secure believers in the least bit. If anything, it did the opposite. With each sacrifice, with the continual bloody scene in and around God's earthly dwelling place, people were reminded continually that their sins needed to be dealt with. 
They were still sick with sin, needed to be forgiven, needed to be restored to God. With the new sacrifice of the new covenant, there is assurance of salvation. There is security for the believer. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm reminded here about how important every word in Scripture is. Notice he doesn't say, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for a moment in time. He says, for all time. Those who have been set apart, those who have been saved, those who are being sanctified, those pursuing godliness, those growing in godliness, that is security. And just to make sure they get it, the author of Hebrews is going to quote another one of their prophets, Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 31. He says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying. So notice here, he's reminding them, Though he's quoting the words of Jeremiah, who does he give credit to? The Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Jeremiah's words are inspired. He wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Jeremiah, through the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, these are God's words, says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. We've already discussed those verses. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Hallelujah. He's simply reminding them here, they should not be surprised by any of these truths he's sharing with them. God promised these things to them long ago through their prophet Jeremiah. He promised to make a new covenant with this people, do a miraculous work in them from the inside out, save and secure a remnant of people forever. He said, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And how is that made possible? Through the person and work of Christ alone. Through Christ alone. Notice how the writer of Hebrews ends this passage. Look at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No need to offer up animal sacrifices anymore, right? His point here is simple. If you've been forgiven forever through Jesus, there is no need to go looking for it any longer anywhere else. You've been forgiven. You're secure telling his Jewish Christian audience, having associated with, with the old Levitical system, he's saying, if you have been forgiven, if you've been restored to God through Jesus Christ, your sins have been dealt with at Calvary, there is no longer any need for you to make any more sacrifice for sin. Makes sense, right? Look at that. Better. In every way. In every way. That's what Christ did. And a single sacrifice for sin, offering his life. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, though you should continue in obedience, you should continue to pursue godliness. We're told that in Scripture. Listen, positionally, you are secure in Christ and there's nothing you can do to change that. If you could, you would foul it up. Listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. So would I. Secure. 
But maybe you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Listen, just like you cannot improve upon a masterpiece, a work of art, you cannot add to the work Christ accomplished at Calvary. All that is required of you is for you to believe in this work and, and forsake your sin and personally trust in Christ's person and work alone for your salvation. Are you trusting in Him for your salvation today? Is Christ your Lord? If not, I urge you today to bow your knee to King Jesus. Make Christ your Lord today. Trust in His person and work today so that you may be saved. I pray you would make that decision today. I pray you would forsake sin and trust in Christ and leave here today with this great hope that we have as believers. Let's pray together.